Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. In 1996, um, these lectures are given as a memorial to George Holmes Howison, who was the first Mills Professor of Intellectual and Moral Philosophy and Civil Polity uh, here in Berkeley from 1884 until his death in 1916. Um, Professor Howison and his family made generous bequests to this university. He left money to the English department, um, money for scholarships for women students, even money for beds in the university infirmary. Um, his largest gift, though, was to the philosophy department. It included his library, uh, the core of our departmental collection that continues to expand with house and funds, uh, a graduate fellowship in his name, uh, and a general purpose fund to further the study of philosophy in Berkeley. So we are very grateful to George Holmes Howison. He has been the philosophy department's greatest single benefactor. But we regard the competition as still open. <laughs> um, now I'm very pleased to introduce this year's lecturer, Miles Bernier, who comes to us from England. He began his undergraduate studies in classics and philosophy at King's College, Cambridge, then went on to graduate study at University College, London, and soon became a lecturer in philosophy there for many years. In the late 1970s, he moved back to Cambridge as lecturer in classics, and then in 1984, became Lawrence Professor of Ancient Philosophy in Cambridge, the chair he occupied until just a few months ago. And he takes up an even new role next week as Fellow of All Souls College, Oxford. Now, he has come to lecture in this country many times as visiting professor at Harvard, Princeton, Cornell, UCLA, Pittsburgh, and other places, and also memorably at Berkeley more than once. And we're very happy that he's here again, if only for a week and not, alas, for a longer stay. Well, professors, Professor Bernier's work is primarily in ancient philosophy. But to say only that would be to miss, I think, what is special and truly distinctive about him. Many who concentrate on ancient philosophy study mainly Plato, or mainly Aristotle. Some even do both and do it very well. Well, Miles Bernier does both, and he does it brilliantly. He stands out. He sets the mark others try and often fail to achieve in the understanding of those two compelling Greek giants. But he does more. His subject is all of Greek antiquity. Not only all periods, but all aspects of it. He studies philosophy as it arose from and played a role in the whole Greek culture. But what's even more distinctive, I think, is that unlike many others whose work is primarily in ancient philosophy, Miles Bernier's work is also primarily in philosophy. His wide learning is informed by a philosophical grasp and perceptiveness 
that's rarely found even in those very few acknowledged leaders of what by now is a long and rich scholarly enterprise. It was in one of a series of essays on the legacy of Greece to Western culture, to history, architecture, drama, politics, and so on, that Bernard Williams observed that the legacy of the Greeks to Western philosophy is Western philosophy. Uh, and it's that legacy that Miles Bernier continues to illuminate and to advance for all of us. Um, he will give three talks this week under the general title, Freedom, Anger, Tranquility, an Archaeology of Feeling. Tonight, Ancient Freedoms. Tomorrow night, same time, same place, Anger and Revenge. Uh, and Thursday at 4 p.m. in the Howison Library, appropriately, on the third floor of Moses Hall, happiness and tranquility. So tonight, ancient freedoms, I'm very happy to introduce Professor Miles Bernier. Uh, I only hope I can live up to that very kind introduction. Thank you very much. Um, you have a handout, uh, and I should explain that the, the, I don't quite know how to describe it, the one that looks like a tree of derivation is a tree of derivation, and that's a sort of, if you keep that on one part, one side, that's a sort of map of the journey we're going to follow. Uh, and the other pages are the evidence I'm going to use to trace this map and I shall refer to the various passages as text one, text two, and the like. Can you all hear me at the back? Am I? No. Right. Is there a microphone? There are three microphones. Are any of them working? Uh, can somebody come and, somebody who knows about these things, come and help? Right. All right, can you hear me now? Yes, okay, good. Um, now I see where we are. The concept of freedom as we use it today is the product of a long history. Many different influences from different times, different societies, different religions, and above all different philosophies have helped to form the conception or conceptions of freedom which are important to us now. That is one of the reasons it is difficult to think clearly about freedom. It is also a reason for hoping that a historian can make a contribution to clarity. Further back in time, things were simpler. We can look for the earliest strands of the tangled notion of freedom we have inherited. I shall be directing attention to one particular moment of those earlier days, which one might describe as the moment when the strands first got twisted. The twister in question was the Stoic philosopher Chrysippus of Soli, who lived in the third century BC. The 
question I think Chrysippus can help us with is this. We speak of a free society and of the freedom or freedoms of its members, using free in a political sense. We also speak of free will, a free agent, and freedom of action, using freedom in what I will call a metaphysical sense. How are the two uses connected? Is it mere accident that the one word carries two such different connotations? Large books are written on political freedom and volumes on freedom of the will, but no competent librarian would stack them all together on the same shelf. On any up-to-date system of classification, the political and the metaphysical applications of this word freedom mark out two quite distinct areas of, dis of inquiry. What I shall be suggesting is that this duality in our use of the term freedom stems from an act of lexicographical effrontery by the philosopher Chrysippus. <coughs> A further reason for turning to Chrysippus is this. The most celebrated philosophical discussion of freedom in our own times is Isaiah Berlin's Two Concepts of Liberty. He too discerns a duality in the notion of freedom, but it is a duality within the political scope of the term. Instead of a distinction between political and metaphysical freedom, his is a distinction within political freedom between negative and positive liberty. Nonetheless, a connection between positive liberty and the Stoics is a recurrent theme of Berlin's essay. If I can show that this connection between positive liberty and the Stoics goes back to the very same act of lexicographical effrontery as that by which Chrysippus created the duality between political and metaphysical freedom, this will, I hope, provide a clarifying historical perspective on the very complex and confusing issues which Berlin is discussing. So let us go now back the Greeks. And let me begin by agreeing that the thing freedom is a thing that the ancient Greeks, or a lot of them, most certainly had. This actuality, the actuality of ancient Greek freedom, was founded, to speak very broadly, on two historical facts, one economic, the other political. First, slave labor was available in sufficient quantity to make much more than a marginal contribution to resources. The second fact, not unrelated to the first, is that the ancient city-states of the classical period, whether democratic or oligarchic, each had their own constitution. They were self-governing autonomous political units. The concept of freedom was founded on and shaped by these two historical facts. It was formed by contrast on the one hand with slavery, on the other with tyranny. It was the contrast with slavery that came first, and we shall see that it continued to play a dominant role in the subsequent development of the concept of freedom. <coughs> when the Greek word eleutheros, free, first appears in the surviving records in Homer's Iliad, it signifies the state of not being a slave. For an individual to be free is simply not to be enslaved. Later, in the 6th century BC, the statesman poet Solon applies the word slavery to the community as well as to individual subjects. The city would be in a state of slavery if it was ruled by a tyrant. Later still, 
after a time lag that we shall see to be characteristic, the term freedom follows suit. From the third decade of the fifth century BC, a city is described as free if it is not enslaved to a tyrant or to an external despot such as the king of Persia. With this surprisingly precise dating, I offer you your first taste of a theme that will recur throughout these lectures. The concepts that modern philosophers discuss and debate are often ones that originated in quite particular historical circumstances. Had things been different then, in ways they could easily have been, we would not be using or philosophizing about that concept today. In the present case, it has been shown by Kurt Rafflaub in his masterly book, Die Entdeckung der Freiheit, that the very idea of using the word freedom, Eleutheria, in a political sense, to describe the self-determination of an independent city-state, began in the 5th century BC, when the Greeks looked back to their momentous victory in the Persian Wars and began to describe it as the securing of their freedom. The idiom seems obvious now because it is so familiar. The Second World War was a battle for freedom in this sense, but it was the slave-owning world of ancient Greeks that gave us the idea to think with and to fight for. The crucial precondition was their extending the application of the term slavery from ordinary individual slaves to the subjects of a tyrant or foreign rule. The term freedom can then follow to express the absence of this communal type of slavery. The upshot of these early developments can be expressed in a proportion. As a free individual is to a slave, so a free society is to one enslaved to a tyrant or foreign rule. On both sides of the proportion, slavery is the term which, to borrow J.L. Austin's memorable phrase, wears the trousers. Everyone knew what it would mean to be enslaved. There were slaves all around. Freedom, to begin with, was simply the absence of that undesirable condition. It's negative. The idea of freedom began without positive content of its own. This deserves further elaboration, for we will not understand the proportion unless we set aside the associations which now cluster around the idea of a free society. When we speak of a free society, we usually mean one which promotes the freedom of its citizens which makes its citizens free in the sense that it gives them valued political and civil liberties. An influential critic of Berlin's two concepts of liberty felt able to write, I quote, it is beyond question that the expression free society is thought intelligible only because it's thought to concern the freedom of agents of some sort or other, meaning individual agents. For he had set out from an unargued assumption that freedom is a social benefit to individuals secured by a society for its members. That such an assumption needs no argument today confirms that, for us, freedom as an attribute of whole societies is defined out of a prior understanding of freedom as an attribute of the members of that society. Very much as Plato claims that what it takes for the city of Athens to be distinguished for its love of learning or for the Scythians to be a spirited people, is that these attributes should characterize individual members of the two groups. 
free, like loves learning or spirited, when predicated of a group or society, it means has members who can be so described. But even this is to understate the modern case. When we speak of a free society, we usually have more in mind than a set of laws entitling the members of that society to freedom of speech and other liberties. People should be able to enjoy their liberties, which requires that the laws be actively enforced. That was the message of the much abused slogan, the free world. The old Soviet Union had many valuable liberties enshrined in its constitution, including freedom of religion. But it certainly was not a society where people were in practice free to worship as they wished. The free world, by contrast, meant the places where people are free in the sense that they both have and can enjoy a variety of political and civil liberties. None of this is ancient. Had you spoken of a free society or a free city to an ancient Greek, they would initially have understood you to mean not one that actively promotes the freedom of its citizens, but one which, however it treats its citizens, is not ruled by a tyrant or a despot or by the king of Persia. It's a matter of external rather than internal relations. Freedom for a community is being an autonomous city-state. Thus, for the ancients, the predicate freedom attributes the very same property to a whole community as it attributes to an individual. Whether applied to a collective or to an individual subject, it says the same thing, that the subject is not under the rule of another, that they are their own master. It is like the way wealthy in J. Paul Getty is wealthy and the USA is wealthy, ascribes the same enviable property to the one as to the other. Consider now a phrase, this is text one on your handout, from Euripides' play, The Suppliant Women. First, says Theseus, who's speaking, you began your speech on a false note, seeking a despot here. For this place is not ruled by one man, it is a free city. In fact, the demos rules, sharing the task of the government by turns each year, and giving no more power to the rich than to the poor. This text shows that Athens is free is simply the positive expression of the fact expressed by Athens is not ruled by one man. The equivalence can easily be missed because Theseus goes on to point out that Athens is also a democracy. But it's clearer in the Greek, thanks to the Mende construction, than it is in the English translation, that this is a distinct and separate point, not, I claim, an elucidation of what's meant by calling Athens free. The Greek also makes it clear through the case endings that the rich and the poor, who in the last two lines have equal rights of participation in government, are masculine. This confirms that eleutheria, the Greek word for freedom, has nothing to do with individual political liberty in the modern sense. In the politics, Aristotle remarks that women constitute half the free persons in the city. If Athenian women are not slaves, they are eleutheri, free, and there the argument ends. Never mind that the women cannot vote or go to court on their own behalf. They are free because they are not slaves. 
This claim that ancient freedom does not imply democracy or democratic rights or individual political liberties is corroborated by Aristotle. In text two, arguing against the idea that democracy is to be defined in terms of majority rule or oligarchy as government by the few, Aristotle says, whether in oligarchies or in democracies, the number of the governing body, whether the greater number as in a democracy or the smaller number as in an oligarchy, is an accident, due to the fact that the rich everywhere are few and the poor numerous. For the real difference between democracy and oligarchy is poverty and wealth. Wherever men rule by reason of their wealth, whether they be few or many, that's an oligarchy, and where the poor rule, that is democracy. But as a matter of fact, the rich are few and the poor many, for few are well-to-do, whereas freedom is enjoyed by all, that's all the citizens, and wealth and freedom are the grounds on which the oligarchical, oligarchical and democratical parties, respectively, claim power in the state. The Democrats' argument, according to Aristotle, is that because they are free, they ought to control the government. Their argument would have no space in which to move from premise to conclusion if freedom and the premise already included such things as the right to vote. This is of the utmost importance. There is some association between democracy and freedom, but it is not of a kind that modern Democrats are familiar with. For in the ancient world, if we may trust Aristotle, the Democrats' own propaganda presupposes that the establishment of an oligarchy does not make the free unfree. It just deprives them of political power. What then do they mean, the Democrats, by freedom, Eleutheria? Here is Aristotle again. Uh, if you could turn on to text five over the page. We'll have to come back to the others, but we'll go over to the page. The basis of a democratic state is liberty, which, according to the common opinion of man, can only be enjoyed in such a state. This they affirm to be the great end of every democracy. So, what's liberty? One principle of liberty is for all to rule and be ruled in turn, and indeed democratic justice is the application of numerical, not proportionate equality. Whence it follows that the majority must be supreme, and whatever the majority approve must be the end and the just. Every citizen, it said, must have equality, and therefore in a democracy the poor have more power than the rich, because there are more of them, and the will of the majority is supreme. This, then, is one note of liberty which all Democrats affirm to be the principle of their state. Another is that a man should live as he likes. This, they say, is the privilege of a free man, since, on the other hand, not to live as a man likes is the mark of a slave. This is the second characteristic of democracy, whence has arisen the claim of men to be ruled by none, if possible, or if this is impossible, to rule and be ruled in turns. And so it contributes to the freedom based upon equality. I think this shows that the freedom that ancient democrats pursue is not the freedom of not being subservient to the state, but the freedom of not being subservient to each other. And when they say that freedom is being able to live as one likes, 
The only content they give to the idea is the contrast with the condition of slaves who have to do what they are told all day, every day. Which is to say again that neither Aristotle nor his democratic opponents would understand the modern sense of the phrase a free country, a free world, in which that's all about promoting the freedom of the citizens. Thus, the primary and original meaning of the Greek terms eleutheros eleutheria, which we translate free and freedom, is this. A city or a person is free if they are not subject to a master. More positively, freedom is having the legal or political liberty to organize one's own life as one wills, the thing which slaves and subject states lack. It's important here to emphasize that we're not talking about the actual power to do as one wills, Hence my phrase, legal or political freedom. When you want to read a book, you have the legal freedom or entitlement to read it, even if some nasty person snatches it away. Conversely, a slave lacks the freedom or entitlement to run away, even if they manage to do so. I must also emphasize once again that the term freedom applies independently and in parallel to both individuals and states without saying anything about the relations between them. The fact that the laws do not permit women access to the courts, but may permit free men in an oligarchy access to the courts, and may even give slaves certain minimal rights, none of this affects the freedom or unfreedom of the individuals concerned. If that makes for a pretty bare concept of freedom from the modern point of view, so be it. The bare freedom to organize one's own life was a prized possession in a world where everyday occurrences like taking part in war, a very everyday occurrence then, or getting into debt, or going on a sea journey and meeting pirates, could easily land one in the slave market up for sale to the highest bidder. If the story is to be believed, it happened even to Plato. I suggest that if we want to discover any conceptual connection between this bare original notion of freedom and other politically more interesting notions, or between political freedom and the metaphysical concept of free action and free will, one way to do it is to try to trace a historical route by which Eleutheria came to mean something more than the bare political come legal freedom I've documented so far, and that indeed is what I propose to do. I shall first take you down a blind alley because it makes an interesting contrast with the route that history actually chose. Non-political, extended uses of the term eleutheria, freedom, soon developed. What's interesting is that the secondary or extended sense which emerged already in the fifth century is a free mind, free action, free speech, in the sense of a mind and action or speech typical of or befitting someone who's free in the political sense. This is freedom as being unslavish, the opposite in Greek of aneleutheros. It can be quite dangerous not to be alive to this meaning of the word. In text three, if you go back to uh, text three, <coughs> many romantic misconceptions have been built on a remark about freedom in the famous funeral speech of Pericles in Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War. Pericles says, 
that we conduct our public life eleutheros, in a free manner. And here, liberal, in the English translation from the lerb, that's the bit that's been underlined, is, is correct. Because Pericles does not mean, as has often been supposed, this is a society in which all are free to take part in political decision-making. He has just said that, but under the heading democracy rather than freedom, and it's a separate point, as it was in the Euripides passage, text one. Pericles means we conduct our political life just as we conduct our private life in a manner befitting or typical of free men. Our political life is free and open. We don't interfere with each other, but as just described, we listen to anyone who seems to have something useful to say. It's not a matter of rights, that belongs to the concept of democracy, but of practice, the practice to be expected from men who are free in the simple sense that they are not ruled by a master or despot. Here is no rich concept of political freedom, but an extended or secondary application of the simple notion of political self-determination. Similarly, free speech in this period is open, honest, or frank speech, as becomes a free adult who's not a slave. It is not speaking with the legal right to say what you wish. A more interesting secondary use than this, also to be found in the late 5th century, can be approached by returning to text 5. The Democrats argue, you'll remember, The Democrats argue that because they are free, that is, entitled to live as they like in a way that a slave is not, they ought to participate in government. This argument leads naturally to the thought that the democratic constitution is one under which people are more able to live as they like, as befits people who are not slaves, than they are under an oligarchy. And indeed, there is a famous passage in Thucydides, I'm sorry, the last time go back to text 4 as the little one down the bottom of the first page of the handout here's this passage where Athens is contrasted with Sparta and described as the freest city in the Greek world and then further described as the place where you're left alone to do as you please in daily life he says, he also reminded them of their fatherland, that's Athens, the freest in the world, and of the uncontrolled liberty in daily life that all possessed in it. Now, the question is, what is the connection between the first description, that Athens is the freest in the Greek world, and the second description about their uncontrolled liberty, or more literally, the power exousia, to live your daily life and epitactos without being under orders. What is the connection between those two things that are said in text 4? The connection in the Greek is a tikai construction which means both and. The two are put in parallel. Nikias, who's the speaker, does not say that Athens is the freest city because its citizens are not, not bossed about. Rather, he says, Athens is the freest city in the Greek world and its citizens live their daily life without regulation or control. 
there's a parallel between city and individual, such that Athens is the freest city because no other city is in a position to boss it about, and the individual citizen is not ordered about by other citizens. Both eleutheria, freedom, and exousia, power, here, have to do with external relations. In eleutheria, external relations between cities, exousia with external relations between one citizen and another. If someone wants to say that even if the text yields no more than a parallel, still the point of the parallel is to imply a connection, I reply that there are two ways the connection could run. If the first description, Athens is free, the freest, explains the second, uncontrolled liberty in daily life, then the idea will be that because Athens is top dog in the Greek world, its citizens can afford to live a life without rules and regulations. Athenian imperialism is good for the folks at home. It is only if the second description, in terms of freedom of daily life, explains the first, the freestness of the city of Athens, it's only then that we have, exceptionally, an occurrence of the phrase, a free city, which begins to approach the modern sense of the phrase, a free country, but it doesn't approach very near. I said that we mean by a free country one that promotes the freedom of its citizens and gives them valued political and civil liberties. I would want to contrast this with the idea that Athens is freer than elsewhere because it leaves or allows people to live as they like. Specific political and civil liberties are protected in our world especially, and from my point of view, most admirably in this country, by rules that tell other people they must not interfere when, for example, I'm speaking my mind. My freedoms are promoted and protected by restrictions on others. The Greek phrase, an epitaktos exousia, in the second description of text four, refers rather to the absence of rules restricting people from speaking their mind. It's the difference between telling everybody they must let me talk and not telling me not to talk. A subtle difference, perhaps, but an extremely important one in our political life, for it makes the difference between a proper right to free speech and a mere absence of prohibitions or restrictions on free speech. The latter, I believe, is the most that is at issue in text four, freedom as license or the absence of rules which Plato will call anarchy. But in fact, I'm pretty sure that the connection, if there is a connection implied between the two descriptions in text four, goes the other way, the imperialist way. Text four, after all, is from a speech made to keep up Athenian morale at a critical moment during the Sicilian expedition, the most hubristic expression of Athenian imperialism. Nicias had begun by reminding his army that their aim on the expedition was to enslave the whole of Sicily, and then, as a result, the whole of Greece. Athens, in other words, is the freest city because it is the most able to impose its will on others. We shall meet this imperialistic aspect of the early notion of freedom once again later. Meanwhile, let us leave blind alleys behind. The next chapter of our story, as history actually wrote it, is to be found in a quite surprising place. The first book of Aristotle's politics offers a defense of the justice of slavery. The defense in a nutshell is this. 
It is just for a person to be owned by another as their slave, if and only if it is better for them to be ruled by another. And that will be so if and only if they are deficient in the reasoning capacities required for planning their own life. Such a person Aristotle calls a natural slave, someone who is a slave by nature. You'll find the definition of this person in text 7. And in text 7, you can read it yourself, describes this character as participating in reason only so far as to apprehend it, but not to possess it. In other words, the slave can understand what he's told to do, but he can't work out for himself what he's told to do. Let's then consider this concept of the natural slave. It's not a legal concept, because it is intended precisely to underpin and to justify the legal status of slaves. This person is a slave by nature. It's not a statement about their lack of rights, nor about them being owned by someone. It's a statement about their being unable, not about their not being allowed to organize their own life. That's how it justifies slavery. It says that the person is unable to do the very thing they're not allowed to do if they're kept as a slave, so it's better for them, and hence just, that they not be allowed. So this is a concept of a natural, not a legal or political, incapacity for self-determination. Aristotle has created, deliberately and knowingly, a new metaphysical sense of the word slave, such that, as is explained in text 8, a person can be a slave in this sense, even though they have no legal master, and can have a legal master, even though they are not, in this natural sense, a slave. Once this step is taken, it's easy to see that the contrasting term free can follow. It can acquire the sense free agent, where that means not one who is legally entitled to determine their own life, but one who is actually capable of self-determination who is able to rule themselves rather than follow another's directions. This further step is already taken by Aristotle inasmuch as the phrase free men by nature is already there in the first line of text 8, where I've underlined it. But it's not enlarged upon. It is a mere corollary of Aristotle's account of the natural slave, the negative of that poor creature. There's no discussion by Aristotle of this side of the contrast. There's merely an invitation, as it were, for someone to take up the notion of natural freedom and speak to it. But no one did. History started a new chapter in which the concept of natural freedom was reinvented ab initio and in a slightly different form from the Aristotelian one. The only explanation I can see for history's unsteady progress is that those scholars are right who believe that Aristotle's school treatises were by and large ignored or not known to the philosophers of the Hellenistic period. Be that as it may, whether Aristotle's contribution was known or not, if you glance ahead to text 14, uh, Here you can see Chrysippus, the third head of the Stoic school, 
formulating in new terms a definition of freedom as the power of independent action. I've underlined it as the first bit underlined. The Greek is exousia autobragias. A free agent, this implies, is a person who is able, not just a person who's entitled, one who's able to determine their own action, who can decide for themselves what to do. Chrysippus' definition does for the term freedom what Aristotle did for the term slave. But his doing it apparently owes nothing to Aristotelian precedent. The key to Chrysippus' motivation is given by the title of the book in which this definition of freedom was presented. The title is On Zeno's Having Used Words in Their Proper Meanings. There are two clues here. First, that Chrysippus aims to defend Zeno of Citium, the founder of Stoicism. Second, that Chrysippus' definition claims to give, on Zeno's behalf, the proper meaning of the term freedom. Now, when the ancients talk of the proper or curious meaning of a word, they imply a contrast with some more or less improper use of the term in question. I say more or less improper because, although it may be a misuse, it need not be. It can be a metaphorical use or simply an extension from the standard use. What we get from Chrysippus' title, then, is no more than this, that people felt there was something deviant in the way Zeno used the word freedom, and that Chrysippus set out to show there was nothing deviant there at all. Little as this is, it's enough to show that the new chapter in the history of freedom, the chapter which leads up to Chrysippus' definition of freedom as the actual ability to determine one's own life, began at least as far back as Zeno. But in fact, there's reason to think that the new chapter started earlier still, towards the end of Aristotle's lifetime, with Crates the Cynic, <coughs> who flourished in 326 BC. The relevance of Crates is that he was Zeno's teacher and a strong influence on Zeno's original formulation of the Stoic philosophy. So, to launch the new chapter, I need to say something about the Cynics. The Cynics were followers of the Diogenes who achieved immortal fame by living in a barrel. Actually, it was a large wine jar in the marketplace. Diogenes' watchword, adulterate the coinage, stood for a deliberate project of trampling on all the conventions or currencies. The word for convention in Greek is nomoi, for currencies, nomismata, so there's a word, word play there. All the conventions or currencies of city-state life. You can see this in text 9. Where he talked about him... Uh, this was the gist of his conversation. It was plain that he acted accordingly, adulterating the currency in very truth, allowing convention no such authority as he allowed to natural right. Diogenes um, called himself cosmopolites, a citizen of the world, i.e. not a citizen of anywhere, an act of provocative defiance at a time when city-state loyalty was still of prime importance to everyone. So what he calls freedom in text 9, when he goes on to say that he preferred liberty to everything, what he calls liberty there 
given the background of adulterating all the conventions and currencies of city-state life and declaring independence of city-state life, what he calls freedom then is total self-determination without the framework of any political constitution at all. He rejects the city and its institutions altogether. This is still the simple concept of political or legal self-determination, paradoxically extended to include freedom from legality itself. Diogenes is not saying anything about what he has the ability to do. He has rather made a declaration of independence from all political systems, where independence must still be understood in a political sense, hence the paradox. Thus, Diogenes has not coined the counterpart to Aristotle's concept of the natural slave. But he does provide the philosophical background to Crates' poem about the island of Pera in text 10. There's a city, Pera, in the midst of wine, dark vapour, fair, fruitful, passing, squalid, owning naught, and so on, into which sails neither fool, nor parasite, nor glutton, nor slave of sensual appetite, it's a bit dirtier in the Greek, I have to say. But time it bears, garlic and figs and leaves, etc., etc. It sounds like a fantasy utopia, an island of peace and simplicity, like the one described in Sir Thomas More's Utopia. Many books on Greek political thought treat it, indeed, in those terms. But in fact, para means knapsack, and wine-dark vapour is a bit of provocative wordplay. You expect the Homeric phrase, wine-dark sea, because Crates is rewriting two lines of Homer's about the island of Crete. But in place of sea, you're given vapour, tufos, which is the cynic term for the puffed-up pride or conceit of wisdom, hot air in our terminology, which keeps people from adopting the cynic way of life. So the knapsack, stocked with thyme, garlic, figs and bread, is not literally an island, but a symbol of the cynic way of life. Crates is using political imagery to describe the cynic philosopher as an island of peace and self-sufficiency, simplicity, in the midst of man's foolishness. It's in keeping with this that he says in text 11 that his country is ignominy, being thought badly of by other people, and poverty, and that he is a citizen of Diogenes, Crates' city is Diogenes' way of life. With this evidence of Crates' habit of using political imagery to make an ethical, not a political point, now look at text 12. Not bent or enslaved by slavish pleasure, they love immortal kingship and freedom. The inhabitants of Para, this tells us, are free, they are kings. In the image, despotic rule and a master's rule over slaves are assimilated and freedom contrasted with slavery. But it's slavery to pleasure, and para is the self-sufficient, self-determining life of the cynic philosopher. Cynic philosophers are free because they acknowledge no master, external or internal to themselves. A person who is slave to pleasure does not determine their own life. Pleasure tells them what to do. We still say slave to the passions, and the Greeks had used that image for a long time. But it is still an important step when someone brings the correlative notion of freedom into the same circle of ideas. Crates may not be the first, but even so, it is surprisingly rare 
given how often they talk of someone being slave to the passions. There is a time lag between each extension of the scope of the word slave and the corresponding extension of the positive value of freedom. And Crates, I conjecture, is the important influence for our story. But before considering the influence of Crates, let us pause to see where we've got to. Diogenes has used freedom to proclaim his total political independence from all political systems. This, you'll find the map I've given you helpful to follow this. Diogenes has used freedom to proclaim his total political independence from all political systems, an extreme and paradoxical application of the political sense of the term. Crates has used it to proclaim himself independent of both external and internal masters. However deviant his use may have sounded, we can still understand it as an extended application of the original meaning of the word. A Greek speaker needs no new semantic information to understand what Crates means. So far then, no one has done for free what Aristotle did for slave. But it's obvious that the ground is prepared. The world is ready to be introduced for a second time to a concept of metaphysical freedom. Let me also, before proceeding to Crates' influence, acknowledge another force at work in this history, one that precedes not only Diogenes and Crates, but Aristotle too. In books eight and nine of Plato's Republic, there is an elaborate analysis of a series of different types of personality and vocabulary drawn from the analysis of different types of political constitution. The democratic personality, for example, is someone for whom all desires are equal, none are to be preferred to any other, all have equal rights to expression and fulfillment. The result is a condition of psychic anarchy, which the democratic personality is shameless enough to call freedom. After the democratic type comes a horrific dissection of a soul tyrannized by a single obsessive lust, the effects of which are described in vocabulary drawn from the analysis of political tyranny. Such a soul, because it is enslaved to a tyrannical obsession, is as unfree as a city enslaved to an actual tyrant. Of all the personalities a human being can have, this, we're told, is the one that does what it wishes least. Plato is on the brink of saying, one, that the tyrannized soul is the one least able to do what it wishes, and therefore, too, it is the least free, and then going on to the positive corollary three, that a free soul is in truth one that is able to do what it wishes. But in fact, so far as I can see, none of those three claims is made. And in any case, the writing throughout books eight and nine of the Republic is so vivid and colorful were we to find, after all, a statement or an implication to the effect that a free individual is one who is able to organize their own life so as to act as they wish, we would not know how to place Plato's language on the spectrum of proper and improper meanings presupposed by Chrysippus' title, the one about Onzenus having used words in their proper meanings. And in all likelihood, it would be a crime to insist on an answer. When Aristotle in text 8 announces the existence of people who are free by nature, we know he means what he says seriously and literally. We know this 
not only from the plain, plain and sober character of his writing, but also because he frequently insists, and he was perhaps the first person in history to insist, on the importance of distinguishing between literal or proper curious meanings and other improper, extended or metaphorical meanings. Plato defies this kind of linguistic taxonomy, as Aristotle himself complains. So what we should say about Plato, I propose, is simply this. To the common image of a person enslaved by their passions, he added an elaborate analogy between the structure of political systems and the structure of personalities, an analogy which invites and makes intelligible the cynic twist it's given in texts 10 and 11, where the philosopher's soul is depicted as an island city of peace, freedom, and kingship, this last being a significant addition which may well allude to the philosopher kings and queens of Plato's Republic. We are now ready to continue the history. For Crates himself is not so very important. But as already mentioned, he had a pupil, Zeno of Citium, who was the founder of a philosophy which came to play something of the same role in ancient culture as Christianity did later. Stoicism was, just, was not just one philosophy among others. It was the dominant establishment philosophy whose concepts and modes of thought became the intellectual currency of the whole Greco-Roman world. <coughs> Hence, what Zeno says is going to matter, not because everyone will agree with it, but because even those who disagree, or those who can't be bothered with philosophy, will find themselves thinking with concepts that originated in the Stoic school. Now, the whole of Stoicism can be regarded as a deduction from, a working out of the consequences of, the thesis that the world is providentially constructed. Human beings are so made that it is always possible for them to have knowledge of the world and be happy in it. It follows at once that happiness cannot consist in or require anything which it may not be in our power to attain. Ordinary goods, health, wealth, status, family, and so on, are vulnerable to fortune, to contingent circumstances which may remove them from our grasp. Anything external can be taken away from us. Happiness must therefore depend only on something internal, on the disposition of our own selves. We can always aim at the external goods, even if we cannot always achieve them. If we're to be happy, therefore, we should value nothing but this internal disposition, virtue, which is the aiming at the external goods appropriate to our circumstances. Of course, in practice, most of us will not reach this ideal outlook. We just do care about achieving health, status, a successful marriage, and other external goods. But if the world is providentially ordered, the ideal must be, in principle, possible. Let us therefore consider this ideal person and explore in detail the consequences of imagining someone so completely in control of their own happiness. We've already seen, in effect, that the person regards all ordinary goods as indifferent, not of ultimate value. This is not to say that they have no preferences among them, but that they do not feel their happiness depends on getting on in life in ordinary terms. When the Stoics say the good person or the sage is happy on the rack, they do not mean they wouldn't prefer not to be there on the rack. They mean that a truly wise and good person doesn't feel that anything that really matters is lost, as perhaps they would feel if they gave away a secret under torture and betrayed their friends. 
Such is the outlook of the sage or the good person as the Stoics conceive it. Now, Zeno wrote a Republic which had much to say about the sage. It was a book, moreover, which manifested the influence of his cynic teacher, Crates, for we're told that it was written on the tail of the dog. Dog or dog-like is what cynic means in Greek. Notice also Zeno's title, Republic. No one could put out a book with that title without suggesting some relationship or rivalry with Plato's Republic. The suspicion that Crates was giving a cynic twist to themes from Plato's Republic is confirmed, I think, by Zeno's public and evident invitation to his readers to compare what he has to say with what Plato said in the First Republic. The point is clinched when we add that Crates' teacher Diogenes had himself written a Republic, so that Zeno's was in fact the third in the line. What then did Zeno say in his Republic? He said, as you'll see from text 13, second paragraph he said among other things that only the good person is free all bad people and that I have to tell you includes all actual people like everybody in this room are slaves we can guess two things the first is that what Zeno would have meant by this would be a development of what Crates has already emphasized that only the sage is self-sufficient but in place of the cynic view that the way to be self-sufficient is to simplify your desires so that you want only things it's very easy to get, like a barrel instead of a house with a mortgage, or sexual self-sufficiency instead of the complications of marriage, Zeno would have proposed something more sophisticated and philosophical. Only the wise are self-sufficient because the only thing they regard as having real value is the aiming at the ordinary external goods which they think of as preferred indifference. The wise can aim for lots of things, health, family life, and so on, which the cynic would fight shy of, because what matters to the wise is the aiming, not hitting the target. And aiming for these goals is something the world cannot take away from them. It's in this sense that they are free. They are totally independent of the world and its contingencies. Diogenes, by contrast, wins his freedom by not getting involved in the sorts of causes that can land you on the rack. Cynic self-sufficiency comes from caring for very little. Stoic self-sufficiency from caring more about caring itself than about the objects of care. The second thing we can guess about Zeno's Republic is that the ordinary reader would have been surprised and shocked to be told they were not a free agent but a slave. That's an abominable misuse of words, they said. We know they said it because text 14, as we've already seen, tells us that Chrysippus, the third head of the Stoic school, wrote a book on Zeno's having used words in their proper meanings, in which he defended Zeno's thesis that the wise alone are free and everyone else is a slave by formulating a definition of freedom as the power of independent action, exusia autoprogeus. A free agent, this implies, is a person who is able to determine their own action, who can decide for themselves what to do. This definition of freedom as the power of independent action does at last, for the term freedom, what Aristotle did for the term slave. 
It consolidates what was felt to be a misuse, a deviant meaning as a new literal meaning. But notice that this new concept of freedom is still in antithesis with slavery, which Chrysippus now defines, continuing in text 14, after the freedom is the power of independent action, slavery he now defines as the deprivation of independent action, not having the power to organize one's own life, and then ordinary previous uses of slavery are defined as secondary to this. First you get as a second form of slavery which is subordination as such, a meaning which probably reflects the Greek idea that a permanent salaried job, such as many of us have, is a form of slavery. You do have to keep turning up for work. And secondly, the combination of being subordinate in that way with actually being owned. This last gives the meaning in which slave is correlative to master, so that the ordinary legal notion of slavery emerges as a third and final derivative meaning of the word. This is what I called Chrysippus' act of lexicographical effrontery. The effrontery is his claiming that his metaphysical antithesis of free and slave gives the proper meaning of the terms. For the order of priority in his account of the three senses of slavery is, of course, the exact reverse of the real historical line of descent. And what he defines as the proper meaning of the word freedom is, in fact, the first clear and explicit formulation of a metaphysical notion of freedom such as we are familiar with today. It is no good Chrysippus arguing that Zeno meant all this along. No good him arguing that Zeno meant this all along. Even if that was true, Chrysippus would not have needed to write his book if Zeno's usage had not taken people by surprise. In fact, Chrysippus would expect people to be surprised. He wouldn't regard this as evidence that he was wrong in his definition of the proper or curious meaning of Eleutheria, but as evidence that most of us have corrupt minds. While the deepest divides between the Stoics and their opponents in antiquity is over the question whether what people ordinarily think their words mean is a proper guide to what their words mean. The Stoics side with the Platonic Socrates in the belief that people do not have immediate or easy access to the real meanings of words they use every day. Chrysippus would be equally undisturbed, I surmise, by the historical story I've been telling. From his point of view, it would simply confirm that Pericles was a fool who didn't understand the real meaning of Eleutheria and that Zeno is the one who used words in their proper meaning. For myself, however, not being a Stoic philosopher, I shall continue to speak of Chrysippus' new concept of freedom. Freedom is the actual power to determine one's own life. This is not quite the same as Aristotle's natural freedom. Aristotle contrasts freedom or slavery by nature with freedom or slavery by law, who we see doing this at the end of text 8. Chrysippus has a concept of natural law which allows him to identify nature with a certain kind of law, divine law, or the law of nature itself. The importance of this for his concept of freedom comes out in the Stoic definition of the term exousia, or power, which serves to define freedom. According to text 15, exousia is agency or power delegated by the divine law. The phrase lawful agency embodies a claim that the wise man has the power to determine his own life both in the sense that he has the ability and in the sense that he has the authority. 
when I say both in the one sense and in the other, I appeal to our sense of ambiguity. The rarely difficult thing about Stoic moral philosophy is that it denies the ambiguity. What the good man is naturally able to do is what he ought to do. This is, as I said, extremely difficult to understand, but understanding it would be a prerequisite for understanding how it happened that contrary to modern expectations, the metaphysical concept of freedom was created for use in a philosophy which believed strongly in universal causal determinism. Free will was not invented to compete with determinism, but to embrace it. Chrysippus' intervention was decisive. Just how decisive can be seen from Philo's treatise, Every Good Man is Free, written at the point of transition from BC to AD. This work is an extended defense of Chrysippus' definition, using arguments that may well stem from him and from Zeno before him. For example, against the ordinary man's notion of slavery, as something about being legally owned by a master, we are urged to try buying a lion to see if that makes us its master. <laughs> Conversely, in text 16, argument is given for a proposition that clearly goes back to Zeno to the effect that a good man's freedom is shown by the fact that only he acts without compulsion. The reason is that the only thing he regards as good and worth wanting, the only thing he does want, is virtue, which is the aiming at this or that, not the actual attainment of these goals. And the aiming is something he can always do. Indeed, it's something he must always do, being the sort of person he is. What he ought to do, what he can do, what he must do, what he will do, these all coincide. There's nothing he wants that he might fail to achieve, so he always achieves what he wants to achieve, is never prevented from achieving it, never compelled to do something he doesn't want to do, he and he alone is free. Now you may feel that in these texts you cannot accept that Eleutheria expresses our metaphysical concept of freedom yet, because in these stoic theories only the good person is free. I reply to this an important objection that we must distinguish the concept from the paradoxical thesis for whose sake it was invented. The concept taken on its own is just the concept of the actual ability to do as one wishes. A whole network of Stoic premises restricts this ability to the sage, but not every philosopher is a Stoic. Around 200 AD, Alexander of Aphrodisias wrote a critique of Stoic determinism from an Aristotelian point of view, in which he maintained that all humans possess the ability, he too calls it exousia, and moreover, that this is a two-way ability, the ability to do or not to do whichever way one decides. A modern reader is immediately at home in text 17 when Alexander argues that the Aristotelian person of practical wisdom might reasonably demonstrate their freedom of action by not doing for once the reasonable thing or the thing they ought to do. The point would be to refute the prediction of some impudent prophet who claims, you're a sensible person, the sensible thing to do in these circumstances is X, therefore, of necessity, you will do X. So the wise person, for once, doesn't do X. <coughs> once invented, the metaphysical concept is available both for the determinist 
and for the antideterminist like Alexander to use, or so Alexander himself believed. It's true that the phrase translated the freedom of his actions here, to Tonenagaon, Eleutheron, is a rare occurrence in Alexander's De Fato. The bulk of this very detailed and interesting discussion of determinism is conducted in terms of other concepts than freedom, responsibility, necessitation, power, and the like. We're only at the beginning of the long history of the metaphysical concept of freedom. The next chapter begins with a long discourse on the Latin phrase, libera voluntas. But one passage in Alexander is proof enough that it has become possible to conceive a debate about power, causation, and responsibility as a debate about freedom. Alexander doesn't need to explain his use of to eleutheron, the freedom of his actions. Yet, Plato wouldn't have understood this way of putting it, nor would Pericles. Plato would have understood Zeno, but he wouldn't have had the semantic information to grasp Alexander's low-key, matter-of-fact insertion of the term. Pericles would have misunderstood Alexander to mean that it is an attractive mark of a liberal mind to allow oneself the occasional perversity. When we read Alexander, on the other hand, we understand at once. For after Chrysippus, everyone understands. I won't read a passage in which I confront an objection about Epicurus, who actually started before Chrysippus, um, but I will explain that to discussion in discussion to anybody who likes to ask. I want to go on to the last section. I have by now, I hope, given you some reason to believe that several of the different and confusingly conflicted strands in the tangled notion of freedom we've inherited derive from the uses and misuses by various ancient Greek philosophers of an original bare notion of freedom as self-determination or sovereignty. In this case, at least, we cannot afford to contrast ordinary language and philosophy, because ordinary language is, in fact, the residue of long-dead philosophies. I regard this point as of some methodological importance, for I think there are other philosophically important concepts where it's quite wrong to think that ordinary language is innocent of philosophy. Rather, the speakers of ordinary language are no longer aware of the dead philosophies which created and gave sense to the concepts we take for granted. A good deal of what contemporary philosophers condescendingly call folk psychology was in fact the invention of earlier philosophers, whose concern was often not to explain our minds and behavior, but to improve them, to turn us to the pursuit of virtue and wisdom. Accordingly, I should like to conclude by bringing the results of my investigations of earlier philosophers of freedom into relationship with that celebrated essay by Isaiah Berlin. For if my methodological conclusion is correct, the most fruitful way to discuss a concept like freedom is the way Berlin discusses it, densely, historically, confusingly, and with constant reference to dead philosophy. Berlin's two concepts, as many of you will know, are positive and negative liberty or freedom. Negative freedom answers the question over what areas of activity am I free to do as I wish as far as concerns government regulation or interference by my fellow human beings. In other words, what legal and political liberties do I enjoy? Berlin has been criticized for saying that this concept of negative freedom is not ancient, but a modern development, 
a late product of capitalist civilization. But I think he's right. The passages from Thucydides, which his critics urged against him, came out, when we looked at them earlier in this lecture, they came out to be saying that the Athenians are tolerant of each other as free men should be, not that they enjoy political rights of participation in democratic processes, still less that they have protected rights to life, liberty, and happiness. This is connected with the point I made earlier, that the predicate free in ancient Greek almost always says the same of a city or society as of the individual, so that our sense of free society is missing. It's missing because of the notion of the freedoms which a free society in our sense promotes for its citizens is missing. Positive freedom, on the other hand, is being one's own master, the power of self-determination. Berlin quotes Rousseau saying, he is truly free who desires what he can perform and does what he desires, and proceeds to trace this positive concept back to the Stoics. Again, he is right. We've just seen the positive concept emerging in Chrysippus. What is not right, I think, is Berlin's suggestion that it is a perversion of positive freedom to regard it as something that only a wise and good person can enjoy. That was the whole raison d'etre of Chrysippus' new concept, to show that everyone else, i.e. everyone actually living, is a slave to the passions or to the external things which are the objects of the passions. For the passions assume value in things that are contingent and external. <coughs> it was the opponents of Stoicism, like Alexander, who liberated positive freedom from subservience to the needs of cynic and stoic philosophizing. This liberation simultaneously broke the connection via the stoic theory of natural law between political freedom and metaphysical freedom. History moved on and forgot the philosophical concerns which had made sense of people having this one word freedom at work in both the political and the metaphysical domains. Subsequent philosophers, Rousseau for example, have forged new connections between political freedom and metaphysical freedom, but forging not finding as the word. When the input of philosophical theory flags, all that remains is the duality of the word itself, now without rhyme or reason. That makes life difficult for the librarians, but the librarian's difficulty is trivial when set against the deep and serious problems about freedom which Chrysippus lexicographical effrontery bequeathed to the modern world. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.